Let's pray together. Father, thank you so much for the opportunity to gather together and to get into your word. And I pray that you will open our minds. I pray that we will open our hearts. I pray that we will receive from you. And if we will just open ourselves to your word, your word will do the business. Your word will work the change because it's living and active and sharper than any dual-edged sword. And just like the rain that comes down from the sky that doesn't return without uh, watering the earth and making it bud and flourish to provide bread for the eater and seed for the sower, so is your word that goes forth from your mouth. It will not return to you empty, but will accomplish all that you desire. Our responsibility is to not have hard soil that is unwilling to receive it. We need to plow up our fallow ground we need to repent. We need to open ourselves to what you would have to say to us and stop being driven along by every wind. It used to be of doctrine, but today it's every wind of politics. And I pray that we will receive what you have to say today as we get into 1 Corinthians. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so up here on the screen, um, those of you that are here locally, you will see a picture behind the text that is actually some columns from, I believe it's a temple to Apollo in the ancient city of Corinth. So we're gonna take a look at this. Uh, I have, uh, I don't know if I'll keep calling this this, but perhaps now it, it makes a lot of sense. Um, I'm, I'm titling our study, and I don't know how long this will last. I, I went all the way through 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians uh, both several years back. This has been 2012 through 2013, I think right around there. And I, it took me about a year to get through 1 Corinthians. So I, I don't know if it'll take that long this time. But one way or the other, the title of this study could be God Loves Dysfunctional People. Because as we're going to see, the church at Corinth was a dysfunctional church. Now that doesn't mean, just like, uh, you know, a dysfunctional family doesn't mean it's entirely dysfunctional, right? It just means it's not operating the way it's supposed to operate. And that's, you know, a lot of us face that. We keep talking about new normals when it concerns, you know, how we're dealing with the pandemic and all these sorts of things. But in America, we have a new normal when it concerns family. Well, there's a lot of dysfunctional families. Well, these letters to the Corinthians um, focus on problems in this church in the city of Corinth. And it was indeed a dysfunctional church. But as we'll see, there was plenty of good stuff that was going on as well, but Paul was continuously having to correct them. So uh, without further ado, let's take a look at the city of Corinth. Um, quote, Corinth spread out below the 1,886 foot high Acrocorinth, that's a, a mountain there, and uh, if one of you guys are operating the PowerPoint up there, there's, uh, there are several ancient pictures of Corinth there, and you'll see that mountain in the background if you'll put one of those pictures up there. That, that mountain towered above the, the isthmus, so Corinth was on an isthmus. It was on a tiny four-mile-wide piece of land, um, that uh, separated Achaia from Macedonia. We'll get into that in a moment. A glance at the map will show that Corinth was made for greatness. So there is a map up there that shows one of Paul's missionary journeys, if you'll go to that. 
The southern part of Greece is very nearly an island. On the west, the Corinthian Gulf deeply indents the land, and on the east, the Saronic Gulf similarly, similarly cuts into the land. All that is left to join the two parts of Greece together is a little isthmus only four miles across. On that narrow neck of land stands Corinth. Such a position made it inevitable that it should be one of the greatest trading and commercial centers of the ancient world. All traffic from Athens and the north of, north of Greece to Sparta and the Peloponnese had to be routed through Corinth. So if you look at where way over to the left side of the map, do you see where it says Achaia right there? It's green, it's the upper left, right? Corinth, you can kind of see it right there, is right there in that little tiny piece of land. So you have Macedonia and you have Achaia, and they're both parts of Greece, but Corinth sort of connects them, right? So it's right there in that little isthmus. Um, so all the traffic that's going from north to south and much of the traffic that is going across the sea from east to west is going to go through Corinth. So this is a huge commercial center, right? Um, objects of luxury soon found their way to the markets, which were visited by every nation in the civilized world. Arabian balsam, Phoenician dates, Libyan ivory, Babylonian carpets, Sicilian goat's hair, Lycionian wool, Phrygian slaves, all of this. This is an ancient city, but it was destroyed by Rome in 146 BC. Well, obviously we're dealing with AD. In fact, uh, as we'll see in the not uh, shortly, we'll see that uh, Paul is likely writing this letter to Corinth in about 56 AD. So about 200 years, close to 200 years before that, Corinth was completely destroyed by the Romans. But it was reestablished by Julius Caesar as a Roman colony in 44 BC, primarily because uh, it was destroyed because there was a rebellion against Rome there. This is the early Roman Republic. And Julius Caesar is the, the first Roman emperor, so we have the Roman Empire. And uh, they just couldn't get past the reality that this is an incredible uh, commercial center because of where it sits, right? Um, the settlers in the rebuilt city were primarily freed slaves. Hmm. They were freed slaves. slaves. Once the colony was securely based, it attracted entrepreneurs from Greece and the major trading countries of the East Mediterranean. Such infusions of new capital in a prime commercial situation inevitably generated more wealth, and within 50 years of its foundation, many citizens of Corinth were men of very considerable means. Corinth became a capital city the metropolis of the Roman province of Achaia, which included practically all of Greece. Listen to this quote uh, by William Barclay about the citizens. This mass of Jews, ex-soldiers, philosophers, merchants, sailors, freedmen, that's freed slaves, uh, and slaves, there were slaves there as well, tradespeople, hucksters, and agents of every form of vice. Corinth as a colony, without aristocracy, without traditions, and without well-established citizens. That sounds a lot like this entire country. <laughs> no, I started to say, the Wild West. 
You know, this is why I think people uh, in the United States are so, or, or many people, are so uh, enchanted by uh, England's royalty. You know, wh why are we hearing anything about, you know, English royalty and why would we care? But yet, you know, we're, we're getting these updates and people are paying attention to it. And uh, I don't know, there have been several shows uh, that have come on that have gotten quite a following because we don't, we don't have that, right? The closest we have to aristocracy are celebrities. And that's not aristocracy, okay? Um, well, this Corinthian commerce uh, leads to immorality. Uh, here is an extended quote by William Barclay. There was another side to Corinth. It had a reputation for commercial prosperity, but it was also a byword for evil living. The very word Corinthia zestai, that's the Greek word, meant this was a word that was coined. They created this word, okay? It meant to live like a Corinthian, to live like a Corinthian. Okay, well, that makes sense. But what was the connotation? That's the denotation, to live like a Corinthian. But how did a Corinthian live? This was part of the Greek language and it meant to live with drunken and immoral debauchery. So when they use that verb, it meant you were an immoral, drunken person. The word also entered the English language and in the early decades of the 19th century, that's the 1800s, in Regency times, a Corinthian was one of the wealthy young men who indulged in reckless and riotous living. Alien, the third century Greek writer tells us that if ever a Corinthian was shown on the stage in a Greek play, he was shown drunk. The very name Corinth was synonymous with debauchery, and there was one source of evil in the city which was known all over the civilized world. Above the isthmus, right, the isthmus, right, that little neck of land, towered the hill of the Acropolis, and on it stood the great temple of Aphrodite. So um, look at this picture. You see that mountain up there? Mm -hmm. There's your Acrocorinth, right? And there was a temple to Aphrodite up on top of that mountain, right? So who is Aphrodite? In Greek mythology, who is Aphrodite? The goddess of, the goddess of love. That temple, to that temple, there were attached 1,000 priestesses who were sacred prostitutes. And in the evenings, they came down from the Acropolis and plied their trade on the streets of Corinth. Now, a little uh, contradiction to that, uh, according to a uh, well-respected Bible scholar named Konzelman, this, this story about the thousand prostitutes comes from an ancient historian named Strabo, and Konzelman says he thinks that it's a fabrication. Um, eventually, it became a subject of a Greek proverb. Here's the Greek proverb, quote, it is not every man who can afford a journey to Corinth. So in addition to these cruder sins, there flourished far more subtle and little known vices, which had come in with the traders and the sailors from the ends of the earth. Until Corinth became a synonym, <clears throat> until Corinth became a synonym for not only wealth and luxury and drunkenness and debauchery, but also for filth of every kind. Now here's another 
quote from the Anchor Yale Bible Dictionary, Aristophanes, this is a, a, a Greek um, writer, coined the term that we heard earlier, Corinthia zestai, which meant to fornicate, right? That means sexual immorality, sex outside of marriage. Uh, Philetaris and Folikoas wrote plays entitled Corinthiastes, and that would loosely be translated the whoremonger. A Corinthian girl, uh, excuse me, Plato used Corinthia Core, a Corinthian girl, to mean a prostitute. So this will tell you what we're dealing with when we're dealing with this city, right? Let's talk about Paul in Corinth. Paul spent a year and a half there. Uh, this was second only to uh, Ephesus, where he spent two years. And in addition to that year and a half that he spent there, he kept having to go back and he kept having to send letters. And we have two of those letters. Paul met uh, two traders there, a woman named Aquila, excuse me, a man named Aquila and, her, and his wife, Priscilla, and they were both tent makers. Well, Paul was a tent maker. That's how he made his living when uh, he was unable to receive donations from churches. He would make tents during the day and then he would teach at night. Paul never took money from his work uh, among the Corinthians, even though they were very wealthy. And this was a policy Paul had. While he was working with a church, he would not take donations for, from them. Once he was finished working with that church and he moved to other churches, then he would receive donations from them. So it wouldn't appear like he was simply there to get money from them. That way, once he had established Christian faith there, then they could choose without being under compulsion. And in fact, that uh, that verse that I quote often that says we should not give uh, under compulsion um, comes from Corinthians. Now, Paul spends an extended period of time in 2 Corinthians in particular, but in also in 1 Corinthians, talking about a collection that he is taking up from the Corinthians, but it's not for himself. It's a collection he's taking up so that he can help the, the poor in Jerusalem. So, it is not as though he was unwilling to receive uh, donations. It's that he didn't want to appear as so many itinerant teachers uh, were to be doing it for the money, all right? So right after Paul left Corinth, that year and a half that he spent there, trouble started. The church that Paul planted there, and we can read that in Acts 18, and I may read Acts 18 here in just a moment, because um, I hate referring to these things when we have primary source material about them. But uh, Acts 18 describes Paul's uh, time in Corinth. But right after he left, uh, the church began to divide over various issues. 1 Corinthians addresses many practical questions dividing the church, questions concerning such things as spiritual gifts, marriage, food offered to idols, and something as important as the resurrection. One of the most important chapters in all of scripture is found in 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians 15 is also called the what chapter? The resurrection chapter, all right? When we get there, I'm sure we will have to spend more than one Wednesday, all right? Let's talk about the Corinthian letters. As I said, Paul wrote a number of letters to Corinth. We only have two. Because 
when we read 1 Corinthians, he's indicated these that he has already written them. Then we know that 1 Corinthians is really at least 2 Corinthians. It's going to get confusing. And then he wrote another letter after our 1 Corinthians, which is actually sec, actually 2 Corinthians, which would be 3 Corinthians, which makes 2 Corinthians actually 4 Corinthians. <laughs> so we have 1 and 2 Corinthians, but 1 Corinthians is really 2 Corinthians, and 2 Corinthians is really 4 Corinthians. So if you want to really confuse people, you know, you say, turn to 2 Corinthians, but then, you know, you go to 1 Corinthians. And then tell them, turn to 4 Corinthians, and then they'll think you're a heretic, all right? <laughs> 1 Corinthians was likely written from Ephesus in about A.D. 55. So Paul spent two years in Ephesus, but he kept having these problems in Corinth. By the way, he had a lot of problems in Ephesus as well, not with the church, but with the people outside the church, right? So um, the Expositor's Bible Commentary says this about 1 and 2 Corinthians and the dating of them. The suggestion, therefore, may be made that 1 Corinthians was sent in the spring of A.D. 55, while sending 2 Corinthians may be placed in the fall of A.D. 56. So you can see there's a lot of trouble in Corinth because these letters are relatively close to one another. And these are two of four that we know of. Now, we're not talking about a time when you have the United States Postal Service and you can just you know, I mean, we don't even send letters anymore. Did, does anybody send letters anymore? Like actual letters? By the way, I've encouraged people who are having trouble with other people, rather than send an email, and definitely don't send a text, and definitely don't post about it. Sit down, don't even type it on your computer. Get a piece of paper and get a pen and handwrite a letter to them. There's something about that. Fold it up, put it in an envelope, address the envelope, stick the stamp on it, send it. Before you send it, read it again, pray over it, maybe rewrite it. Interestingly, the Apostle Paul did not have these instant sources of communication. And in spite of that, in spite of the fact that he was hundreds of miles across the ocean from Corinth, he writes at least four letters to them. And we see in 2 Corinthians that he planned to go back and visit them. And we see in Acts that he did go back through and visit them for a short period of time. This is a troubled church, right? Now let's go ahead and uh, we'll get to the, uh, the greeting here and we can just put it right over the top of that. Paul, called by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus and our brother Sosthenes, to the church of God that is at Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints together with all those who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. So, it's a standard opening in one of these letters. This is a letter. It's an epistle. It is a letter that is generated because there is a need. It's not, hey, I just want to check on you. I try to text people and call people, see how you're doing, right? I try not to bother people. But if I know that there's something going on and um, 
But these are, these are letters, 1st and 2nd Corinthians, that are designed to address problems. But he still opens them formally. But that doesn't mean that the form is without meaning. Um, let's start with this first phrase. Uh, Paul, called by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus. An apostle is an ambassador. It's someone who is sent out. But we're talking about a select group of people in this early part of the first century that are the witnesses that Christ sent out. Now, my intent at the present moment is to cover a number of witnesses of the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus between now and Easter Sunday, because I want you to know that you too are a witness. You are an ambassador. But that means that you're witness to something that has happened in your own life and in the lives of others who have come to Christ. If nothing's happened in your life, you're not a witness of anything. You might be a believer, but I don't know how far that faith has gone if it hasn't resulted in any transformation in your life. We're witnesses too, but we're not witnesses on the level of the Apostle Paul or Peter or John. They were select people and they were inspired, they were anointed, and they left behind uh, God's word for us to read. Paul is the last of these ambassadors that, were, that was called by Christ. He was called after Jesus rose from the dead and uh, after Jesus had ascended. And Jesus arrested him literally on the uh, road to Damascus and dropped him to the ground and said, Paul, Paul, why are you persecuting me? Paul said, Lord, who are you that I may know? I'm Jesus, the one whom you're persecuting. I always find it interesting that Paul, who thought that Jesus was a heretic and was trying to get people killed for believing in Jesus, instantly recognized the voice of God. Listen, you know, there's this idea that if you just sincerely believe anything, it's okay. I'm telling you, if you're sincerely seeking God, you're going to find Jesus. That's the reality because Jesus is God. Jesus is God's representative. He's the perfect uh, uh, imprint of God in a human being. He's one with the Father. And he came down to explain the Father to us, right? So, sure, I encourage people to seek God. But if you seek God in a general sense, you're going to find Jesus. Now, if God for you has some other connotation to it, you know, God is some elevated form of the human spirit or something, or God is the universe, or, you know, uh, you're, uh, you're a, uh, um, one of these people that believes that just God is in everything and is everything, right? Um, then you're not going to find Jesus because that's not God. So, it doesn't matter who they are, you know, my Muslim friend, my, my Jewish friend, if you genuinely seek God, you're going to find Jesus or he's seeking you, right? So Paul was called by the will of God, not the will or the whim of humans. He didn't even want the job. You know, that's what you find with a lot of God's people. They really didn't want the job. But God says, no, I've chosen you. Remember Moses? Moses said, can you just send somebody else? Yeah. <laughs> he did. He did. He did. Mm -hmm. And God got mad at him. 
but not mad in a way that, you know, he wanted to destroy him or, or push him away. He said, no. Well, I thought he did try to destroy him. There's a weird story about his son and, and the bridegroom of blood and all this other stuff. That's a strange story. But on the whole, um, God was incredibly patient with Moses and with the people, the children of Israel. But Moses didn't want the job, right? Paul was trying to kill Christians and he becomes the premier apostle to the Gentiles. Mm -hmm. He was a Pharisee. He didn't even like non-Jews. <laughs> that's true. <laughs> and he become, because that's what he's called to do. So um, there are Christian leaders who have come by their position by reason other than God's call. I still, I, re I relate this often. And if you knew who it was, you, it's not somebody that goes to this church, but if you knew who it was, uh, you would say, oh, hmm. But I had somebody one time who was, this was a younger person. I've been around forever. And so a lot of these younger people are, you know, middle-aged now and have kids and they're cool. They've got great lives now and stuff. And this is one of those people. But a long time ago, this person used to go to our church and like virtually everybody that went to our church in the early days, wasn't married, didn't have kids, trying to figure out what to do with his life. He said, well, you know, I could, I could see myself being a pastor of a big church. I was like, well, there you go. Because if we just lay it right there in your lap and you get a big salary and you get a big platform and you can stand up there and everybody can scream your name. Oh, preacher, that was such an awesome message. Then you're doing it for the wrong reason. So when I see these guys, and I'm not going to mention names because I'm not here to put down other ministries, but you know, you can pretty readily pick up on whether somebody is doing what they're doing for money or fame or for Jesus. Now, Billy Graham is probably the most famous evangelist of all time, but he didn't get rich off of it. He lived in a modest size house. He took a set salary. He never got in trouble with women. He never got in trouble with money, but he was ridiculously, overwhelmingly famous. But it was so he could preach the gospel. I, I watched him uh, do Richard Nixon's funeral. And there were five or six living presidents sitting on the front row in front of him. Do you know what he did? He just preached the gospel. Now, this is where people beef on Franklin Graham. Franklin Graham loves the gospel. He loves Jesus, but he's very political. And he says a lot of political things. This is his son that runs Samaritan's Purse. And he says a lot of political things. Billy Graham was very irenic. Franklin Graham is very mercurial. And this is where they're, they're different than one another. Um, Billy Graham really started the new evangelical movement in this country, right? Um, now that's just become politics, and that's unfortunate. Now, I could mention other celebrity pastors. And by the way, celebrity pastor is an oxymoron. That's not what you're there to be. And yet there are those that are celebrity. There are celebrity worship leaders. There are celebrity worship bands. Now, how are they using that platform? You know, you, you don't know. Uh, but what you do find much of the time is that uh, these folks fall because of money or because of sexual immorality.
or because of abuses of power. And I could use names right now. Boom, boom, boom. But I'm not here to try to put down other people or disparage other people. But I want you to keep your eyes wide open because there are those that are in ministry, but it's not for the right reasons. It's not because they were called. Four things. The call is not inherited. Just because daddy was a famous evangelist doesn't mean junior has the same calling. Franklin Graham's not an evangelist and he knows it. He doesn't try to be. Now he, he preaches, he speaks, he, you know, and so forth, but he's not his dad, but he runs Samaritan's Purse and it helps millions of people all over the world, right? And he is a leader. The call is not shared through marriage. Oh, I'm going to love this one. Or maybe you're not. Got a lot of ladies here today. I can't tell you, I can't tell you how many times I see this picture of the husband and wife and they're called the pastors of this church. Yeah, I've seen that too. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. No. Okay. Just because the pastor is called to preach doesn't mean his wife is. Nor does it mean she has his authority. The wife is called primarily to support her husband and his family. And that's not a less important job. When you're trying to lead a group of people, even if it's a small group of people like ours, you need support. You need someone that you can talk to, someone that will love you, someone that will pray for you. Some, listen, it's absolutely essential, right? It's not Pastor A and Pastor B. I'm sorry. And, and I can't tell you how many times it's like, you know, the, 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 the man gets famous for writing a book. Well, his wife's got to write a book too. I'm not saying she's not called and you can be called. The point is the call. That's what I'm trying to say. You're not the co-pastor by virtue of marriage. You're not an evangelist because daddy was an evangelist. That's not the way it works. You have a calling. Every one of you has a calling and your responsibility is to hear that call and heed that call. The call, this is number three, should not be confused with popular acclaim. Just because a celebrity or an athlete or a musician becomes a Christian doesn't mean they're called to preach or teach or start a church. There's a church in California started by a football player. I went to it and you know, I'm, I mean, he was, he was also an evangelist for a while, was kind of a youth speaker for a while. And yeah, he's probably called, I would, uh, yeah. But I see these situations where, okay, so I am gonna use this name because this guy's in the news all the time. And he is somebody who I'm still not thoroughly convinced is a complete follower of Jesus yet, but Kanye West, Ooh. Kanye West. So this guy is going around with this uh, group of musicians and, you know, doing what are essentially concerts. Well, that's what he does. But does that mean he's called to be a pastor? Does that mean he's even spiritually or emotionally mature enough to be a pastor? And the answer to that question is no. I remember, and this is what I compared it to because I, I got interviewed about this a ways back by uh, a writer for the Dallas Observer. And I had a whole bunch of people that hated on me because of what I said. I said, I'm not ready to jump on the Kanye bandwagon. I'm sorry. I'm just saying, I'm still not. I'm not saying he's not saved. 
but I'm, he's not a full-grown disciple of Jesus yet. You've got to give people time to grow. Just because somebody's famous doesn't mean they're automatically a leader. Even the Apostle Paul, he had the background. He had the theology, but he hadn't worked through things and he hadn't become spiritually mature yet. So he immediately started preaching the gospel, but God wouldn't let him have the freedom to do it. He ended up going to the Arabian desert, into the Arabian desert for three years on his own to get things figured out. And even after he came back and came to, went, went to Jerusalem, they sent him on his way and he went back to his home area, his home city of Tarsus. Once the gospel was established in Antioch, Barnabas went and found Paul because he knew what his calling was and brought him back to Antioch and Paul started teaching there. And then there were prophets recognized prophets that were there and Christian leaders in Antioch who were fasting and praying and they heard the Lord say, set apart Saul, because his name wasn't changed to Paul yet, and Barnabas for the work that I have called them to. And only then, years later, did the apostle Paul go out. And yet we have these instant Christian celebrities. It's just boom. And a lot of times it's musicians because they're already great musicians. Okay, so from my era, uh, from my era of Christian music, Dion, who had been a singer back in the 50s, Dion DiMucci, became a Christian artist. Okay, um, and I, you know, tell people about this all the time. Bob Dylan was a Christian artist for a short period of time. You realize that? And he spun around after he'd been, he, he released a couple of albums that were, that were Christian albums. The third album was sort of kind of in and out. And then he just left the faith altogether. Did you know he actually went to CFNI? He went where? Where? Christ for the Nations. Christ for the Nations. Oh, okay. Oh, okay. <laughs> he went to CFNI for, I think, a semester. Bob Dylan. Oh, my goodness. B.J. Thomas. Remember, raindrops keep falling on my head. Yeah. I, I'm old, all right? No, I was right there. I saw him. So here's B.J. Thomas. He's singing his heart out for Jesus, and these are great songs. But he's dressed like he used to dress, like basically, you know, a uh, pop singer. So he'd wear these shirts that were unbuttoned. Now, bear in mind, this is the 70s. Unbuttoned down to the navel, right? Because you were supposed to show off your hairy chest and you unbutton under the navel. And tight jeans. I mean, these jeans are so tight that they show things that shouldn't be shown. Let's just put it that way. At his concerts, there were people who were fundamentalist Christians who were running down to the front and shaking their fists and screaming at him and tell him, telling him that he was sexually immoral and he shouldn't ought to be doing that. Well, see, it's not always that the, the celebrity is doing something wrong. They're just doing what they know how to do, but they're not fully mature yet and they don't know how to handle all of this, right? And so what often happens is these people just get sick of all of that they get sick of the way Christians act, and then they just back out of it. There was a band 
in the 80s called Striper. Hair metal, if you know what that was, okay? They released three strongly Christian albums. They were on high rotation on MTV, and this is back when MTV was actually music television. So there was an all request time in the afternoon, right after school got out, when uh, largely young people would call in requests to MTV, and it was always striper videos there for a while. And then suddenly they just got tired of dealing with Christians who were bombing them and pulling them down. And these are the the really super conservative Christians, because listen, they were wearing spandex. They had long hair. They had earrings, all things that don't matter. So I'm wondering who's more immature, right? You know, the Christians who feel the need to, you know, put them down when they're doing a ministry or these folks who are just, yeah, doing their thing, right? So we see that all the time. The call doesn't come from a popular election but by the election of God. Amen? Amen. Then he says, so that was, uh, that was the beginning of our letter here. Paul, called by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus and our brother Sosthenes. Who is Sosthenes? Sosthenes. This is like, he's, he's given co-billing with Paul. Now that doesn't mean he wrote the letter, right? But it means he was somebody important to the Corinthians and he was getting credit. He was, he, he, Paul was saying, this fella that you all know that's important is behind this letter too. It's not just me. I'm not alone. You will find Paul's letters are like that, right? He's got letters from Paul and from Timothy. And in that case, it's because he was oftentimes sending Timothy back to those people. But Sosthenes, who was this? Well, let's back up a little bit. The ruler, oh, you know what I'm going to do? Sosthenes, keep it in your mind. This is what I'm going to do. I'm going to read from the source material. I'm going to read Acts chapter 18. Now, I'm going to read from the New Living Translation, and that way it will move more smoothly for you, right? Very, very contemporary translation. Acts chapter 18. Then Paul left Athens and went to Corinth. There he became acquainted with a Jew named Aquila, born in Pontus, who had recently arrived from Italy with his wife Priscilla. They had left Italy when Claudius Caesar deported all the Jews from Rome, which was somewhere, I think, in the vicinity of 44, 44, 48 AD. Paul lived and worked with them, for they were tent makers, just as he was. Each Sabbath found Paul at the synagogue, trying to convince the Jews and Greeks alike. After Silas and Timothy came down from Macedonia, Paul spent all his time preaching the word. So obviously, uh, Silas and Timothy came down and brought resources for Paul so he didn't have to uh, make tents during the day. So now he spent all his time teaching and preaching. Um, he testified to the Jews that Jesus was the Messiah. But when they opposed and insulted him, Paul shook the dust from his clothes and said, your blood is upon your own heads. I am innocent. From now on, I will go preach to the Gentiles. This is verse seven. Then he left and went to the home of uh, Titius Justus, a Gentile who worshiped God and lived next door to the synagogue. Crispus, the leader of the synagogue, this is the synagogue ruler, and everyone in his household believed in the Lord. Many others in Corinth also heard Paul and became believers and were baptized. Verse nine, one night the Lord spoke to Paul in a vision and told him, don't be afraid, speak out 
don't be silent, for I am with you and no one will attack and harm you, for many people in this city belong to me. So Paul stayed there for the next year and a half, teaching the word of God. Verse 12, but when Gallio became governor of Achaia, proconsul, some, some Jews rose up together against Paul and brought him, that is brought Paul before the governor for judgment. They accused Paul of, quote, persuading people to worship God in ways that are contrary to our law. But just as Paul started to make his defense, Gallio turned, Gallio turned to Paul's accusers and said, listen, listen, you Jews, if this were a case involving some wrongdoing or serious crime, I would have reason to accept your case. But since it is merely a question of words and names and your Jewish law, so this is, this is the way a Roman is hearing this, right? Um, I refuse to judge such matters. And he threw them out of the courtroom. The crowd, so who is the crowd? Well, this is Jews and Gentiles alike, probably. The crowd then grabbed Sosthenes, the leader of the synagogue, and beat him right there in front of the courtroom. But Gallio paid no attention. Paul stayed in Corinth for some time after that and then said goodbye to the brothers and sisters and went to, went to nearby Chentry, right? Um, and so that's basically the... Uh, account of Corinth, right? So the ruler in charge of the synagogue when Paul arrived in Corinth was a man named Crispus. That man became a believer. But if you remember what you heard from the account just now, the Jews in the synagogue rejected Paul. So what would they do with their leader? They rejected that leader as well. Okay. So there have been cases where a pastor of a church uh, goes a new direction and the people don't want to go that direction. So it depends on how, who's in charge, who's actually in charge of the church, right? If there's a church board that's actually in charge, they may fire the pastor. And the pastor will go across the street and start another church and members from the previous church will go to that church. This is kind of what's going on here, right? So Paul preaches the gospel, Crispus becomes a believer and they go next door to the house of this guy, Mr. Justice, if you will. And Paul starts preaching there. Probably Crispus got, uh, I don't know if they could fire him, but they wouldn't want him there, went there. So there's a new synagogue, synagogue leader. Well, did you hear who it was, who they dragged in front of that, uh, that, uh, that courtroom trial, that sham trial? His name was Sosthenes. He was the one they beat in front of the, uh, the courtroom, right there. You know, so it'd like, you know, it'd be like being right outside the, the doors of, uh, you know, the, the court in downtown Dallas. And there's just like, you know, they're just beating some guy uh, that uh, the court didn't want to, you know, hear his case or whatever. So it would seem then a new synagogue ruler named Sosthenes replaced Crispus and Sosthenes was beaten by a crowd in front of the proconsul Gallio after Gallio refused to hear his complaints by Paul and the Jews. All right. This may well be the Sosthenes spoken of as co-sponsor of this letter. It was characteristic of Paul's ministry that he always reached out to the Jewish people first, and it speaks well of the synagogue at Corinth that two of its leaders believed in the gospel. So we need to never consider that people are uh, beyond God's ability to bring them into uh, the kingdom, right? So it might be somebody that you know that's a Muslim. Might be somebody that you know that's a Jew. Might be somebody that you know is a, you know, a philosopher and an atheist. 
Man, you just keep preaching the gospel. You preach the gospel from your heart and from your experience and of course from the word and let God work. That's what we need in this country. We need a revival. We need the president and the vice president and the speaker of the house to become spirit-filled, Jesus-following believers. Amen? And I would have said that with the previous president. Previous Now, you know, we have all sorts of politicians that want to say that they're Christians because there's a Christian base that's voting for them, right? And certainly uh, the president would claim to be a Catholic and the Speaker of the House claims to be uh, Catholic. I don't know what the vice president claims to be. The point is a spirit-filled, Jesus-following Christian. That's what we need to pray for.